Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to Parshat Balotcha. So, Avi, in the very beginning, we are basically talking about the the creation of the Levim and and what it is that their responsibilities are. And I guess right off the bat, why the Levim? How did they, not only just how did they come to be this special group, but also why? So... Really what we see is we're going back in time to right after the Chet HaEgel, right after the sin of the golden calf, where B'nai Yisrael was rebelling, and Moshe comes down, and Moshe says, Who is with me for Hashem? Hashem And the Levium step up. And then they kill about 30,000 people. And at that point, Hashem says, I see that you are zealous for me, and therefore you will be my special people, and you will take the place of the Bechorim, of the eldest child in each family, who was supposed to have worked in the Beit HaMikdash. And so this is where that actual transformation takes place. And we're going to see that there's uh, other places where, where how the continuation of that takes place, right? That there's Machzit HaShekel, there, or, or uh, Pidjon HaBen, the idea that... that um, they're going to to give money. The oldest, the, the family of the oldest child in each family, pays to the kohen so that the levium can get paid to do the that child's job, and that child is redeemed rather than working and living in the in the mishkan or in the Beit Hamikdash. Um, but in this case, it is the redemption of all of the firstborns who would normally have to work in the Beit Hamikdash or in the mishkan for the levium who are taking that job, and so. Now is when things are up and running, and so you need the Levium there to be doing their jobs, and you need the Bechorim to, to not be doing those jobs, um, and so that's where it comes from. So Akiva, one of my favorite topics appears in this parsha, which is Pesach Sheni. And Pesach Sheni is the idea that when Pesach rolled around, there were certain people who were Tamei, who were not pure, and unable to bring the Karban Pesach. And they come forward and they ask Moshe, but we also want to bring the Karban Pesach. What can we do? And so Moshe says, well, let me ask Hashem. And Hashem says, okay, here's the rule. Anybody who is Tamei or who is traveling and who cannot make it for Pesach, you can't you can't voluntarily postpone. But if if the situation forces you to, you can postpone by one month, 
and do um, and and do Pesach a month later. And one of the reasons I love this is it is both about advocating for yourself, but it's about second chances, and the idea that people can have a second chance. And so I wanted to see if you would opine on that idea of second chances, uh, and we'll talk more about advocating for yourself later. So, yeah, I mean, second chances are phenomenal. They And the truth is, is that it's not just a second chance, right? God willing, many of us have multiple, multiple second chances. And... I think that this is just a good lesson for everyday life where there might be something that you are not able to do where you miss out on, where you feel like that was my one and only chance and the message is clear. No, it's not. And I think that maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't apply for everything. Maybe you're never going to get another chance to catch that fly ball. Maybe you're never going to get another chance to, I don't know. Avi, help me out here. Pick up, pick, pick up something that you... Uh, Ask out a particular person who you're interested in. See, I was going to go with that, but I was hoping that maybe we <laughs> would something. take that chance. Okay. Suffice it to say, I think that the message of you can always get another chance is meaningful, and at the same time, the fact is, is that these were people who didn't voluntarily miss out on their first chance. They didn't say, eh, there's always next month. They said, I legitimately can't take part in this, and I want another opportunity. And I think that that both pieces of the message needs to be taken into account. Meaning, it's not about take every opportunity in front of you regardless, and at the same time, don't be reticent to take advantage of that which is available to you because, well, there's always tomorrow. The truth is, is, unfortunately, there isn't. And so, very important to both take advantage of what you have and what you can do in that moment, and at the same time, perhaps the fear of missing out isn't always reasonable in those things which you truly might have another opportunity to try again. So... In summary, I'm going to say no FOMO and also no YOLO. Basically, anything that's a millennial acronym, just discount. Ignore it. So Akiva, we know that the Torah does not bring in things that are extraneous. And yet this whole idea of what order the the Israelites lined up in and who was first and who was second and each according to his flag and then they marched in that order it seems to be extraneous talk to us about why this there may be this need for talking about order and talking about why things things need to be organized People thrive off of routine and structure. Now, it doesn't need to be 100% of the time. We all enjoy a vacation every now and again. However, I think that I can 
very easily speak for most when I can say that those who even enjoy an every once in a while vacation or break from routine will often rather quickly find themselves looking for it again. And, uh, I mean, Avi, you're, you're an educator. Uh, I can't imagine that even if you did have summers off, that it meant the same thing when you were especially later on as knowing what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. And in fact, in Judaism, we have this anyway, because this is when you're going to daven here, and then you're going to do something, and then you're going to daven, and then you're going to... Right, we have, we have an entire uh, organized text on this is what order to tie your shoelaces. This is what you should do first when you wake up, and then second, and then third, and then fourth. And it's that order, it's that routine, and it's that consistency that provides an opportunity for stability, for safety, and for success for many people. It is, in many ways, what finds and defines the difference between those who are able to achieve over and over again and those who find themselves struggling. perfect example would be, you know, one of the things that they say is, there was this famous speech by someone who was in the military who was delivering a graduation speech and uh, what he said to the class was the first thing you do every morning make your bed because it's going to set you up to know that you accomplished something and that you can continue to be successful for the rest of the day knowing what to do knowing how to do it knowing when to do it knowing what is out of place if something is out of place, provides you with this stabilizing safety net. And we all see that children need this. The truth is, is that adults need it too. It's a very unfortunate thing when a lot of people that I'm seeing when they're up in their years and they're retired, they struggle with being retired. They have literally spent at least a third of their life in the workforce. And now they have a third of their life back to know, what do I do with this? And they find themselves struggling. As you develop a routine and a schedule, you become comfortable, safe, and aware. And especially when we're dealing with a group of people that just came out of slavery, who, again, still knew exactly what they were supposed to do and when they were supposed to do it, to go and not have that anymore... Well, we see what happens when they don't have that. When Moshe doesn't come down exactly when he's expected to, what happens? That's it. Chaos. Everything will, everything's terrible. Same thing, right? So, so this is, I think, a perfect example of how you're never too old, you're never too young, and you are never out of place to know that order, routine, and consistency are a great great way to continue to thrive. So, Avi, we have some, what's written is complaining about the mana and about how um, the, the people said, we want meat. And I think at face value, I could understand 
right? We've talked before, I think, about how these are these are people who had cattle and sheep, and they had the flocks from Egypt, so they had meat. So what my question is, is to take it a step deeper, is it possible that rather than this being a group of people who were just complaining, what if it was a question? What if it was a, we just got the Torah, and we understand that there are very strict rules about certain things. How do we prepare these animals and then eat them in a, an acceptable way? Is it that it was as simple as just they were complaining about wanting meat? Or is there a chance that maybe they were trying to say, how do we do this? And instead, they, they got rebuked for asking a question. So, based on two different sources, I'm going to suggest that it was not simply a matter of them trying to be machmir in how they prepare their meat, not being uh, strict or, or, or appropriate. And the first source is the Gemara, which says that shkita was not required until they went into Eretz Yisrael, and that until that time, they would simply cut a hole or poke a hole into the windpipe or of the of the animal, the animal would would suffocate, and then they would be able to eat the animal. The second source is that they already have the mishkan, which means the kohen has been taught to shech the animal appropriately, and they could bring a carbon and eat from the carbon. So all of these tell me this isn't simply a matter of we want to make sure we're doing it right. I think the issue here is really an issue of complaint and most importantly how they complain and how they approach the issue. And one of the things that struck me, right, is that in in oftentimes in the Torah we're brought two different cases or two different topics and when we compare the two we can learn a lot from them. And so I want to compare this idea of when the people who couldn't do Pesach came forward versus these when the people wanted meat and came forward. And if we look at the differences between them, when the people who wanted to do Pesach came forward, they went to Moshe and they asked nicely and they said, we also want to do this mitzvah. Please tell us, how can we do this mitzvah? And Moshe said, let me go ask Hashem. And Hashem gave them an answer. In this case, we look at the words that they are using and the way that they are asking, and they're not coming to Moshe. They're grumbling and mumbling and having parking lot conversations about what's wrong. And if we look at the words they use, they say, we want the food, right? We remember the fish that we ate for free in Egypt. Yeah, the fish was free because you were slaves. And so maybe it's really an issue of you know, the fact that, that what they ask for might even be legitimate, but the way they ask is unacceptable. And that might explain why they are both punished and why they get what they ask for. In other words, Hashem doesn't just punish them and say, boo on you for asking, you don't get it, and we're going to punish you. With, But rather, they get punished, and yet all of these slav, these, these birds come, and then the people pig out on them and get sick from them because they overate, and 
And we see that they sort of get their just desserts. And so I want to turn it back to you, Akiva, and say, not that we question God's methodology, but if we were to try to follow it ourselves, is that a wise way to teach our children? In other words, sometimes our children may ask us for things appropriately. Great, that's fantastic, and we should give them appropriate answers um, in a loving and caring way. And sometimes our children may ask for things that are legitimate, but ask in a way that is frustrating or annoying. And sometimes they may ask us for things that are not so legitimate in a way that is complaining and annoying. Um, and they may even ask for things that are uh, um, harmful for them. And I'll give an example. Right? There is the old story of somebody who uh, wanted a cigarette and the father gives the child the cigarette and says, you want it, you got it, but you have to finish the whole thing thinking that this will remove any desire, right? The coughing and the, and the terrible taste that comes with the first cigarette would remove the desire for cigarettes later in life. And I'm hoping you can opine on that. I think in many ways it comes down to the idea that uh, the problem is with hyperbole. So anytime you're at an extreme doesn't always end so well. And when when we're thinking of that example of, you know, well, all right, you want a cigarette? You're going to smoke the whole thing, or you're going to smoke the pack. Or, oh, my children will be, you know, they'll learn not to drink because that first time they'll get sick and then they'll hate it and they'll never want to do it again. Or even... I'm going to tell my child that if they smoke marijuana, they will die. And we know that, really, that might happen with some of those things. But there's a vast majority that it's not going to necessarily work that way. There could be someone who smokes a cigarette, a whole one, or a pack, and says, oh, as Camel taught us, smoke a pack today, you want to buy a carton tomorrow. Right? These things are addictive. Or someone who goes out and drinks and realizes, oh, I can drink everybody else under the table, which is actually a risk factor for developing uh, the disease of alcohol use disorder. Um, not that in and of itself being able to do that, but those genetic factors that make one able to do that are also risk factors. Um, and similarly, go ahead, eat all the meat you want. Meat, meat, meat. Eat it until it comes out of your teeth. Well... For some people, fine. You may get a couple of vegetarians. And at the same time, there's going to be people who thrive off of that, that hedonistic behavior, more or less. Um, people who thrive off of that dopamine rush. And maybe it wasn't our society, but there's an entire society that had things like vomitoriums and other hedonistic behaviors. And... I think that if the lesson were bare bones, well, this is, you know, clearly a you want this here, you got it. No, I don't think that's a good lesson. But as I'm saying this, I'm actually getting into the idea that perhaps the actual lesson that Hashem was trying to teach is avoid hedonistic behaviors. 
because this is what makes you different from other groups. And so while you may think this sounds nice, I want you to remember that what makes you the chosen people, what makes you my people, what makes you different is that we don't give in to these hedonistic behaviors. We don't accept that you should do to excess. And I think that might actually be the lesson that was trying to be taught was don't do that. And this is why, because it might feel good, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Avi, we have the establishment of the Sanhedrin, uh, basically right after it talks about the complaints about not having meat. And then after we go over the gorging on meat, we go back into um, Miriam and Aaron really kind of attacking Moshe. And I think in both cases, it's really kind of... It doesn't fit, right? So so we have the establishment of the Sanhedrin, and then there's these two guys, Eldad and Midad, who, who stay in the camp, don't do anything wrong, and people go and say, Moshe, Moshe, these guys are doing something wrong. And then afterwards, we have Miriam and Aaron talking behind Moshe's back, saying, oh, that Moshe, he did this, he did that. What's, what is this lesson? So I think there are lessons we can learn from each case, and then there's a common lesson we can learn from both. So let's start with the Eldad and Medad case, right? Uh, Moshe picks 70 people, and they go up on the mountain, uh, or they, they, and, and they are going to be the, they, they leave the camp, and they are going to be the, the Shivim Zikanim, the 70 elders. And yet, sure enough, there's these two guys who are left in camp, and Eldad and Medad start having the same visions as the Nevi'im. And it says there's a boy, and Rashi tells us it was Moshe's son Gershom, who comes running to him and meets Yoshua um, on the way. Thank you. And he, and he tells him what's happening, that Eldad and Medad are having these visions inside the camp, and Yoshua gets very defensive and protective of Moshe. And he says, we should kill them for prophesizing inside the camp. And Moshe does something that to me is a true leadership moment. He says, don't you understand? I wish every single person could prophesize and hear directly from Hashem what Hashem wants of them. Because it's not about me being a leader with all the power. It's about doing what Hashem wants, and I'm simply the facilitator. And so Moshe is, is saying, you know, it's not about me. It's about getting the will of Hashem done. And if more people can help do that, then I'm all in. Then we shouldn't, we shouldn't punish them. We should simply include them and reward them. In the second case, Aaron and Miriam are having a conversation, and Miriam 
starts talking about Moshe's wife, that she's an Isha Kushit, and she's essentially talking Lashon Hara. She's speaking badly about her brother Moshe. And Hashem comes and says, Moshe is important. Moshe is special. Moshe hasn't done anything wrong. And he punishes Miriam with Tzara'at. And Aaron goes and talks to Moshe and says, you have to do something, you have to do something. And Moshe has one of the most powerful tefillot, in my mind, in all of Tanakh. He simply says, Kelna Rifanala. Hashem, please heal her, please. She leaves the camp for seven days, she comes back and she's healed. And so his ability to forgive her and his ability to daven for her when she needs it is an amazing lesson for us. Again, in leadership and in family and in and in healing and in care. Um, so that's sort of each case on its own. And then there's the, the commonality. The commonality is, in addition to Moshe being the ultimate role model in leadership, there's the idea that in both cases, the parties who were offended aren't really able to stand up for themselves. It takes a third party to stand up for them. In the case of Eldad and Medad, it's Moshe who stands up on their behalf. In the case of, um, of Aaron and Miriam, it's Hashem speaking up on behalf of Moshe. Um, and I know recently we've seen research that talks about when there is bullying, right? rather than having the person who is being bullied try to stand up to the bully, what is sometimes more effective is when the third party, the bystander, steps up to try and end things. And I was hoping you could share some of that with us. So I think in general you really said a lot of the bulk of it. And what's... I guess what's really sad and disappointing is you said recently there's research and yet we have wise, wise people who have been quoted and misquoted. I'm sure I'm going to misquote and I apologize to those brilliant individuals who have said it already that it's the silent bystanders who are guilty most of all because there are those who want to do something wrong there are those who are victims, and there's a large majority that stand and watch. And those are the ones who can do something about it. Those are the ones who can do something different. It would be great for everybody to just get along and be perfect, but you know what? Sometimes people do have legitimate arguments. And if those arguments or those feelings or those thoughts become aggressive, malignant, if you will, those silent bystanders are the ones who need to be doing something to say, hey, this isn't 
this isn't right. This is not appropriate. Go figure out how to say it differently. Go do something different. Leave them alone. Whatever it is. Right? Because there's different situations even within this. One is Moshe saying, look at this a different way. And the other is Hashem saying, don't speak about someone like this. And in both cases, it's that it, it's that peace and, and the bison. It's not new. This, is, this has been stuff that's been known for decades by very wise people. And unfortunately, sometimes we keep doing research on things we already know because we like numbers. But I'm going to go with this is, this is pretty safe. If you're a bystander, don't be a bystander. Say something. Here is the Shabbos table question for this week. Share someone who is different, who thinks differently, who might act differently, that you look up to, and doesn't have to be that you look up to them in every single way, but at least in one particular way that you would like to emulate them. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.